0: Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Paul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And all the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, They hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks, and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering." You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Hear the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Thanks Thanks, Beck. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name's Graham. Uh, I am a lecturer in practical theology here at Ridley, and I am the director of the Centre for Children's and Youth Ministry. Um, uh, More of that will introduce the rest of the staff at lunchtime. over these next three weeks, I want to give uh, a little three-week series with the broad title Going Deeper, right? That's what you're at Theological for, uh, College for. Uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these are the things about which you are required to write long essays. <laughs> and that's the point of this, Yeah. Well, perhaps, uh, but not exactly what I'm going to do over these next uh, three weeks. I want to lead us in just thinking about going deeper in three of the sort of Christian basics. Deeper in obedience, deeper in humility, deeper in grace. Three big principles of Christian life and ministry uh, want to draw that from uh, three relatively familiar passages from uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, the life of King Saul, and then uh, two incidents from the life of King David. As we go through, uh, these stories in some way uh, reveal three great enemies of Christian faith and faithfulness and three great resources that are uh, there for us, Uh, three things to use to fight back so that we might go deeper in faith and faithfulness. This morning, uh, let's go deeper in obedience. Uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13. Uh, this sermon reminds me of a story from my days as a youth minister. I was a youth minister at a church in Wollongong in New South Wales, and there is a suburb in Wollongong called Mount Pleasant. Has anybody been to Mount Pleasant? It is what it says on the tin. Uh, it is a beautiful part of the world, and very pleasant people live there. Uh, and there was a, we had a girl in our youth group who was from Mount Pleasant, uh, and that picture that you have in your mind right now, that is the correct picture. Uh, we <laughs> took our youth group to on camp. We went to Leeton, which is in the Riverina of uh, New South Wales. Okay, so think very flat land, um, uh, as far as the eye can see. Sun beating down, beautiful country, and we took these uh, these relatively city kids uh, to this farm and uh, we took them for a walk through the paddock and this girl from Mount Pleasant uh, decided that she did not want to walk through a dirty paddock but she was very grateful for the stepping stones that had been conveniently placed throughout the paddock and thought that if she used the stepping stones she wouldn't (laughs) need to step in the dirt now, you get it, don't you, okay? So these were not stepping stones, and even better, these were freshly laid pseudo-stepping stones so that they were still warm, and, warm and, and smooth on the inside, but but crisp and hard on the outside, <laughs> which meant that when a foot lands on it with some force, then everything goes Up the insides of bell-bottom jeans and then out to hit all of her friends. That story is uh, very much like 1 Samuel 13 because (laughs) things aren't always as they seem, some instructions are given for a reason and our alternative ideas aren't always sensible. 1 Samuel 13 is about a man who makes up the rules for himself with disastrous consequences. And so I pray it's both a lesson and a warning. 1 Samuel 13, verses 1 to 4 are a good start. Saul has gathered an army. Two-thirds of them are with him uh, and the other third are with his son, uh, Jonathan, and they launch a successful attack against the Philistines at Geba. They are now gathered together at Gilgal ready for their next move. The problem is they face a worrying and terrifying enemy. See from verse 5, the Philistines have as many chariots as the Israelites have men in the army. And the Philistines have soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore, which not only means that this army is too big for you to count, but if you remember your Bible stories from Genesis 22 verse 17, The Philistine army is as large as Israel was promised to be at the height of their powers. You will have sometime in the future descendants. as Numerous as sand on the seashore and now Israel is facing this army. They're massing on a hill 17 kilometres away and the people are scared which is an understatement because some are hiding in caves. Uh, Those who can't find caves have uh, fallen behind rocks. When the rocks have run out, they've jumped into holes in the ground and others have run away. And at the heart of the action, there is King Saul and he is getting anxious. Reading from halfway through verse 7. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Saul waited seven days the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Now it seems that it was policy in Israel for Saul to wait seven days for Samuel to come before launching a battle. If you turn back to chapter 10 um, and in verse 8, you get this instruction from Samuel to Saul, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Okay? So Saul was supposed to meet Samuel at significant events and Samuel is a busy man and so a seven-day window. that That's, you know, if you make an appointment with Sam, with Samuel, Seven days he's got leeway because he's got stuff going on, right? But here in chapter 13, seven days have passed. From verse 11 to 12, we read Saul's account of this. Samuel was late and the battle is going to begin at any moment. And, you know, Saul wants to offer a sacrifice so that God would look favourably on them. So what do you think? Like good plan, bad plan. And I reckon if we hadn't read on, we would think, that, that's pretty good. <laughs> there, there's, some, there's some innovation going on here. There, there's some, there's some uh, initiative that Paul is taking. Some good Christian leadership lessons here, right? But we'd be wrong. We'd be wrong. The point is, as Samuel said back in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel will tell Saul what he is to do. That is, God's prophet will tell God's king what to do. God's prophet brings God's word to God's king. Saul has a position of significant leadership among God's people, but he is not God. He needs to live in submission to God and God's word and God's will, and that will come to him through the prophet. And Saul's actions here instead are suggesting that, well, he's thinking that maybe there are certain situations where you can't be expected to follow all the details of God's word. Instead of serving God and obeying him, Saul is beginning to make up the rules for himself. And so you can imagine him saying, look, the people were terrified. And they were beginning to scatter and the Philistines could attack any minute. And like, I know that we shouldn't do this without seeking God's favour. So I I, I just sought to do this. This seemed like the right thing at the time. You just got to be realistic, Samuel. Sometimes you've just got to do what you think is best without getting bogged down in the technicalities of God's word. We might think that that's a reasonable course of action. But we get to verse 13 and Samuel says, you acted foolishly. You acted foolishly. Which is not just that he was silly, because in the Bible to be foolish is, well, Psalm 14 verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's what he has done. You have acted as if there is no God. Saul, of course, believes that there is a God, but his actions, all his actions show that he doesn't believe that what God says matters. He knows this is God's word, but he doesn't see the need to submit himself to God's word. He is a believer, but functionally he is an atheist. And that won't do. There is something more important than pragmatics. For leaders. We're not called to do what's convenient. We're not called to do whatever works. We are called to submit to God's word and to be led by him. And so as we embark on this new year, this year of going deeper in the things of God, going deeper in the life of the church, deeper in our position of influence among God's people, then God's word asks me two big questions and offers one big principle. The principle is this, God's people must be led by God's word. God's kingdom, God's law, the way God wants his people to live, it's not something that we work out for ourselves. Because God's kingdom doesn't look like the world's kingdoms. You know, hang on, we just need to wait. An old man is on his way so that he can offer sacrifice, then we can start the battle. That doesn't sound like sensible military strategy to me. Being crucified wouldn't be my number one choice for how you would inaugurate your kingdom. Telling people that Jesus, the crucified one, has been raised as saviour and lord and is the only name under heaven given to human beings by which we can be saved. Just doesn't feel like the smartest thing to say in the 21st century world. But working things out for ourselves, like that's been the problem from the start, right? When we think we know. Better when we think that we can work out what God really meant to say or what God would have said if he really understood what we are actually facing. No, God is king and God is a good king. God has revealed himself in Christ and by the Spirit speaking through the scriptures. As as we've sung, the Lord has promised good to me, His word, my hope, secures. God knows what is best. He commands what is good. And so obedient submission to his word is both our privilege and delight. Now, how precisely you find direction from this word for the sorts of challenges that you face In your ministry here in the 21st century, well, to be able to do that well, you're going to need some biblical languages, some exegesis, some theology, some hermeneutics, some history, and then to tie all that together, a whole lot of practical theology and reflective (laughs) practice. And the good news is that Ridley has expertise in all of these areas. So settle in. There is good things ahead. But for those skills to be at all useful to you as a disciple of Jesus, first, you need a heart of of obedience and faith-filled, willing submission. So my two questions. First, do you agree with God or are you willing to submit to him? Do you agree with him or are you willing to submit to him? Because realise that submitting to God isn't the same as agreeing with him, particularly if you've grown up in the church, you've always been surrounded by people that are going to cheer your life of devotion to Jesus. It's easy being Christian when being Christian is easy. But Jesus didn't pray in the garden Father, thank you so much for this plan of dying on the cross. I think that's a great idea. I am 100% on board. Let's get to it. With loud cries and tears, he prayed. With loud cries and tears, he prayed that this cup would be taken from him. What does the writer to the Hebrews say? Looking for my colleague, Andrew, with loud, uh, he learnt obedience through suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. And that's the invitation to us in our Christian discipleship. Mark 4, Jesus said, whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will Save it. An invitation to a relationship of trust, to continue to love and trust and obey even when I, especially when I can't see the good thing that's promised. So I wonder where is Jesus calling you to submit to his will? Not just what is Jesus calling you to say yes to, but what is he calling you to say yes to that you want to say no to? What will it cost to trust his call, to obey his word? What will it cost to give over your control, to give up that sinful desire that you don't want to let go, to come come clean about those secret actions that are causing you such shame? Does it mean embracing the challenge that you are afraid of making the decision that you know will be unpopular, letting go of those past hurts that you have allowed to define you. His promise is life. Lose your life. Turn from your own desire for control. Turn to Jesus. Shape your life by his good news and find life as it was always meant to be lived. The first great enemy of Christian faith and faithfulness is a disobedient independence from God. And that enemy is at work even here. So our line of defence is that together we would commit to go deeper in willing, obedient submission, joyful submission, to God's word and will. So my second question is, are you brave enough to pray Psalm 139 verses 23 to 24? Now, can anyone here recite the last two verses of Psalm 139 from memory? Jill can, but she didn't have to do it for assessment last year, and a number of you did. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's part of the guided spiritual formation unit. Some of you will get to that eventually. But you get to the end of Psalm 139 and we pray, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I wonder which of us, who of us has the courage to pray that prayer. to ask God, like the living God, to cast the searchlight of his gaze upon your heart, to search out the dark recesses of your heart, your mind, your thoughts, that he might reveal every last trace of disobedience and self-sufficiency, And to ask him to put us to the test that all that might come to the surface. So that whatever there is that might be keeping me from his way, I ask God, would you strip that away, whatever it is, even if it's my health, even if it's my material well-being, even if it's my academic standing, the reputation among my peers, My goodness. Like if you're not afraid to pray that prayer, then you just haven't been paying enough attention. But if my sin is like a cancer, though I would prefer a masseur, what I really need is a surgeon. And God's word and the witness of God's people and my experience of a a, of a life of walking with him, until now, all of that confirms that he has always done what is compassionate and gracious. He has always treated me well, even when it's painful. He has always shown himself to be slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. But other than his word of promise, I have no guarantee that he'll be like that in the future. But his word of promise, <laughs> now, that's a, that's a big thing. That word of promise is sure and more sure really than anything else that we might touch or know or pay for. And, of course, all of this promise is confirmed in our Lord Jesus. These elements and symbols that are before us, His life of faithful obedience took him to the cross and beyond that into glory. So, yes, this will be my prayer tentatively with a deep request for mercy. But will it also be yours? Will it be ours? So let's pray. Oh, Lord God, not as I will, but what you will. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way that's everlasting.